Welcome, emergency departments across British Columbia. Sign your charts. You have reached your end of shift. You're listening to End of Shift, the podcast brought to you by the BC Emergency Medicine Network. This is the pilot episode of a six-episode series published monthly covering an eclectic blend of clinical and holistic topics in emergency medicine. I'm your host, Eric Angus. I'm an attending emergency physician and trauma team leader at the Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver. My co-host is Dr. Joe Hager. I'm an emergency physician and trauma physician at Royal Columbian Hospital and Eagle Ridge Hospital. And both Eric and I, we both started off as family doctors. I've been in practice probably about 30 years. And uh, Eric, how long have you been in practice for? Since 91. You can do the math, Joe. (laughs) So we both worked in rural communities. Um, I know Eric's been up in Powell River and Squamish, and I was up in Inuvik for two years. And I've also worked overseas a fair bit in Africa and Nepal, et cetera. And why are we doing this? Well, we're really hoping it's going to be an excellent form of education for you Uh, We're hoping it can appeal to a lot of the emergency personnel all across BC. Thanks to the BC Emergency Medicine Network for being the catalyst and support for the podcast. This pilot episode has been sponsored by the Lionsgate Hospital Physician Engagement Society. We'll be bringing you a diverse mix of clinical pearls and discussions about the philosophy and practice of our craft and yours, emergency medicine. You can find out more about the podcast at www.bcemn.ca. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Brian Yang. Brian's the head of urology for the Fraser Health Authority. He's a clinical assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Brian, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, Thanks, Eric. Uh, Thanks, uh, Joe, for inviting me to join you guys in your very first podcast. My name is Brian Yang. Like you mentioned, I'm the head of urology in Fraser Health. I work out of three hospitals, mainly out of the Royal Columbian and Eagle Ridge hospitals, as well as uh, Burnaby Hospital. Born and raised in Vancouver. I grew up in North Delta. Went to medical school at UBC and did my specialty training in Hamilton. My specialty is in uh, minimally invasive surgery, so it ends up being a lot of cancer surgery. But working at the Royal Columbian Hospital, we kind of see whatever comes in through our door as the regional referral center. So anything from trauma to bread and butter urology, uh, we have experience with it all. So we're sitting here in Eric's house in North Vancouver, in the basement, uh, in a bedroom, sitting around a table with a beautiful little carpet that's on top of the table. And it's quite comfortable down here. So let's start the first case, Eric. All right. So Joe... You're sipping your coffee, and this rolls into triage. 59-year-old male presents with a three-hour history of left-sided flank pain. Started abruptly, constant, severe, radiates to his left testicle. Nothing helps the pain. It's certainly not the Tylenol he got at triage. You find him standing at the head of the bed, pacing. He looks sweaty, a bit pale. Afebrile, normal vital signs except a heart rate of 110. He has a normal abdominal and testicular exam. He has some left-sided CVA tenderness. You grab the bedside ultrasound and find a normal caliber aorta, as well as some left-sided calyceal fullness. The nurse informs you the urine has three-plus blood without nitrates or leukocytes. All right. Well, Joe, prior to sending him to urology, the nurse provides your patient with parenteral NSAIDs, opiate, and antiemetic. You can obtain a CTKOB 
which shows a 3mm distal left ureteric stone with mild hydronephrosis. Your patient's pain is well controlled, and you discharge him home with a urine strainer, some form of ureteral smooth muscle relaxant and analgesics, as well as urologic follow-up, perhaps with Dr. Yang. So... Today, we're going to talk about this sort of case, which is obviously renal colic, but we're going to also get into some other urological emergencies as well. So Brian, what cases do you really want to be called about in the middle of the night? Things that you don't want to miss. The reason why I chose urology is because true urologic emergencies are relatively uncommon for a surgical field. (laughs) Um, but you're, I mean, in the case of renal colic, the things that I really need to know about are septic stone and things that are kind of impending renal failure. So things such as bilateral ureteral obstructions or uh, ureteral obstructions, solitary kidneys. Now, unless they have like severe indications for dialysis, those aren't super emergencies, but I would still like to hear about them. And we'll usually deal with those ones in the morning. But septic stones are one of those things that we have to deal with almost immediately, especially if the patient has a few comorbidities, these patients can crash really, really quite quickly. In terms of other urologic emergencies that are non-traumatic, we definitely want to hear about testicular torsion, priapism. Uh, these are usually things that we should deal with uh, fairly soon. Penile fractures, we should deal with fairly soon. These are sometimes things that we can actually deal with in the next day, but hearing about it overnight so we can uh, deal with it in the morning is important as well. Of course, uh, urinary retention is something that we often face as urologists. It is or the bane of our existence. Um, but at the same time, you can only imagine how poor these guys feel if they haven't been able to avoid for 24 hours and their bladders are a liter full and they're just in so much trouble. If you guys can get the catheter in and maybe we can talk about some techniques and tricks today. Um, but if you guys can't get the catheter in, just call us, let us know. Sometimes if it's not severe and the pain can be controlled and he's not in renal failure, yeah, we'll deal with it in the morning. But I would never fault anyone for calling me and letting me know any time at nighttime. I would say to summarize, you say you want to hear about infected stones. You want to hear about testicular torsion, priapism, penile fractures, and maybe refractory urinary retention. So does that mean you're okay with Fournier's gangrene? We should just sit on that overnight? Well, Fournier's gangrene is one of those tough ones. Uh, It's always a bit of a diagnostic dilemma as well. Certainly, if the patient is stable and not floridly crashing, we we can wait a few hours. But, you know, if the patient is really, really sick, yeah, of course, we'll have to deal with it right away. Um, But, uh, yeah, that's another one of those things that I don't think anybody would ever fault you guys for for calling us about. It's something that we have to hear about and come, come examine as soon as we possibly can. Very good. So let's go to the case of the um, of the renal colic. In your experience, do the very proximal stones, the presentation of the proximal stones, do they differ than the presentation from distal stones? So the presentation of renal colic is very interesting because when you guys see renal colic and when we see renal colic are night and day, okay? So the kidneys are very, very smart organs. In the acute phase of obstruction, uh, what happens is that uh, you get swelling of the kidney and that's what causes the renal colic pain. But believe it or not, within the next 24 hours or so, the kidney will shunt its renal blood flow to the other kidney and stop putting urine out of the obstructed kidney. And the, the pain plummets at that point. They absolutely have no pain. 
So renal colic, oftentimes when you guys see them, they're in a huge amount of distress. You wonder if you're ever going to make them feel better. By the time they show up in my office 24 hours later, they have absolutely no pain whatsoever. They're not, they've been off of NSAIDs since they left your emergency department. You mean that's not my excellent analgesia skills? It's just the fact that the kidney is smart and shunting blood to the other kidney? You know what? It's your gentle voice, Eric. I think it really puts them at ease. But at the same time, no, you're right. You know, dealing with acute pain is a big issue. But yeah, the kidney is very, very smart. It will shunt the blood flow to the other kidney and their their pain just almost disappears. The old uh, mantra is that upper stones typically hit hurt in the flank. And as the stones come more distally, they hurt in the growing. Uh, in my experience, this is not completely true all of the time. Uh, sometimes upper stones hurt in the groin just as much, and sometimes lower stones hurt in the flank just as much. In terms of passage, uh, all passage data that we have in literature is usually based on four to six weeks of passage time. So uh, mostly the passage rate of stones depends on the width of the stone, not so much the length of the stone, but the width of the stone. And uh, typically we say that anything below four or five millimeters has a good chance of passage. Anything above five, six millimeters has a decreased chance of passage. When you say four to six weeks, I'll have to admit, because patients will ask me, how long could this take the pass? And I totally chicken out because the idea of saying to someone, oh, you know, four to six weeks, this will pass. The patients look crestfallen when that happens. You're absolutely right. Uh, In the acute situation where they're in so much pain, it's hard to say that. But when they show up to my office a day or two later and they have absolutely no pain, uh, they can understand that if they don't have pain, they can they can hang out for four to six weeks and let it pass. So if you have a complete obstruction on one side, how long does it take for the kidney to be damaged? It's a good good question. I mean, the the studies for that have been done on dogs only. They've tied off dogs' ureters and, and released them after several weeks and see how much damage. Typically, it takes several weeks of complete obstruction for for permanent damage to set in. So we've got this case now, and we've given some analgesia, and they're starting to feel better, and we're thinking of ordering some kind of imaging. What's the recommended imaging? Both acutely and also for your downstream management, what should we do in terms of initial imaging and downstream imaging? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, initial imaging, the best is the next uh, CTKUB. Uh, CTKUB now has been protocoled to be so low dose. It's about the same amount of radiation as a flight from here to Toronto. Believe it or not, even pregnant ladies can get CTKUBs without any issues at all. You know, Brian, I've heard that pregnant ladies sometimes fly to Toronto. <laughs> you know, Even further sometimes. Yeah. You're right, Eric. It's just amazing. But yeah, a CTKUB has been protocol so well, and the technology has is so good that you know you can get a ninety nine point five percent sensitivity for uh, calculi in the urinary tract and very very minimal radiation. So no doubt in my mind, CTKUB is the best. Now, if this patient bounces back two weeks later, you don't necessarily need to get another CTKUB. What I would probably start off with is an X-ray KUB because you can look at the CT and you know where along the ureter the stone should be and you can follow that area all the way down to the bladder to see if you can see a fragment about the same size as what you saw in CT. And that's a really good test to kind of see the progression of the stone. But it's obviously the sensitivity is far less. All right. So I'm hearing that the ideal initial investigation for renal colic would be a CTKUB. What happens if you don't have the CTKUB? What happens if you're in a small rural center? 
you know, nowadays you guys are so fantastic with these point of care ultrasounds. Um, it can, you guys mentioned earlier that you can throw an ultrasound at a kidney and see if there's just some mild hydronephrosis. Maybe you can even see the ureter. Oftentimes on ultrasound though, you cannot pick up the stone inside the ureter if it's gone down into the pelvis. It's just really hard to see. Typically also, ultrasounds tend to overestimate the size of stones. And in my experience, it's up to about two times the real size of the stone when you compare it to a CTKUB. So if you don't have a CTKUB available, I would probably first throw an ultrasound on the abdomen, see, see you know, if, uh, if there's some hydronephrosis, some signs of obstruction. And then you could also do an x-ray KUB to look along where you th- expect the ureter to be to see if you can see a stone. That's good. Say you've had a patient who's got a known stone. They've had a CT scan. We know there's a stone in there. And now you're just waiting for it to pass. But they come back in with another pain episode. Would you recommend another CT at that point in time? Or would that be somebody you can just treat symptomatically or maybe just an ultrasound? What do you think about that case? In that case, typically, if it's just uh, nothing's happened in between, you're waiting to pass a stone, no shockwave lithotripsy has been tried, no, uh, no surgery has been tried, patient's not septic, like clinically, it's just pain. I wouldn't necessarily jump right to a repeat CTKUB. Uh, what I would probably do first is get just an x-ray KUB to see the progression of the stone. Uh, the ultrasound, again, will help. And some of the things that you can look on ultrasound that might help you uh, tell if the ureter is obstructed uh, include things such as hydronephrosis. Um, you can see some stranding around the kidney if it's obstructed. You can look into the bladder for ureteric jets if you have Doppler uh, on your ultrasound. Um, you can also do something called resistive indices in the kidneys where you look at the renal blood flow um, and you can calculate how fast the blood is flowing to see how obstructed that kidney is. That's a little bit more complicated, probably more for the radiologist to determine, but these are sometimes very helpful things, especially when pregnant ladies where you can't get, where you don't want to get a CTKUB or if you don't have a CT available for you. But yeah, I would probably, for in those cases where for follow-up, like for example, I see that all the time. I'll see a patient with a 7-millimeter stone in the ureter. I'll send them for a shockwave lithotripsy. And I usually get some sort of imaging two to three weeks later to see if the stone has passed. It's either going to be an ultrasound or it's going to be an x-ray. Eric, tell me about your analgesia and antiemetic treatment that you, you're using these days for renal colic. My personal one? Yeah. I find these people are coming in, and to be honest, the first thing I give them is intravenous fentanyl because that makes them happy right away. So I give them that and some intravenous antiemetic. As soon as they're not puking, then I give them some oral anti-inflammatory because it's going to last for longer. And in my experience, it's as effective as intravenous anti-inflammatory. And once that's happened, then I can get them so they're not going to puke on the way to the scanner. So that's my initial approach. So mine is similar. I typically start with intravenous morphine, usually five milligrams and just repeat it once or twice. And then also intravenous ketorolac. So if they're smallish, I usually do 10 milligrams IV. And if they're a fairly large BMI, I'm going with 30 milligrams IV and usually some Gravol or some Ondansetron as an antiemetic. I typically haven't been doing what you're doing, Eric, giving oral ibuprofen, although I pretty certain that the studies show that there's no difference between oral ibuprofen and IV ketorolac. I think Brian needs to weigh in now with his comments on our management of pain. 
You guys are the expert in terms of the acute episode. A couple comments. One is that NSAIDs have an additional uh, mechanism of action in addition to just analgesia. NSAIDs decrease the renal blood flow, so decrease your urine output out of the kidneys. So that very, very rapidly um, kicks in and the pain improves significantly. So it's it's the second mechanism why anti-inflammatories will probably work a little bit better than narcotics for this type of pain. To me, I think the best initial management would probably be a mix of some narcotics, 30 milligrams of IV Tordol, and some antiemetic as well uh, initially. And then uh, after that, I, I like using Tordol as an outpatient every six hours as needed, 10 milligrams. But it really is the same as three Advil, 600 milligrams of oral ibuprofen. So it doesn't matter which NSAID you use. I don't like to use the Indocid suppositories as much just because, you know, most people don't like to have suppositories. And also, um, sometimes they don't quite last that 12 hours uh, that I find. So um, the the shorter uh, duration of um, of Tordol uh, every six hours seems to work a little bit better. For I've seen some people give a normal saline bolus um, to try to flush the stone out. What do you think of that? That has actually been proven to be the wrong thing to do, and actually makes the pain worse. Correct? It absolutely does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a kind of old way of thinking that we're going to flush that stone out by increasing urine output. Uh, It doesn't. It doesn't work. Uh, It actually just causes more pain. Um, We see this in that uh, stone passage rates, as well as um, um, uh, chance of stone passage, is exactly the same in aneuric patients on hemodialysis as compared to. Um, people with normal kidneys. What do you think of the urine strainer? We've been typically sending patients home with a urine strainer. What's the pros and cons of that? Why would you bother even doing that? I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, Basically, more so for the long term, if we can get that fragment, we can analyze it. I can better give them advice in the future how to prevent stones. Stones happen at 10%. So one in 10 people are going to have an issue with kidney stones in their lifetime. And once you pass your first kidney stone, and obviously risk factors are both, they're, they're kind of modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. But once you pass your first kidney stone, your chance of forming another stone in the future is 50-50. Right? So, so uh, I mean, I, I unfortunately have patients who their lives are plagued by kidney stones. Their, their entire lives are driven by when they are going to have their next episode of renal colic. They've had to quit their jobs as airline pilots. Um, so the more information we have to help these poor people, uh, the better it would be for him. So for them. So I really, really appreciate it when you guys send them home with some strainer so I can have some long-term advice for them in the future. If possible, that is. If not possible, they say, oh, I was at work and I saw it go into the urinal. Don't fetch it. Do you want to see all renal colic? I mean, there must be a category of kidney stones out there that you don't want to see. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, current recommendations aren't very mature, but there was a recent paper that came out um, talking about uh, can you assume the stones pass just because the pain has gone away? And the answer was absolutely not. So even if they have a two millimeter stone, one millimeter stone, you should probably get some imaging in about a month or six weeks to make sure they've passed that stone. So um, it doesn't matter if it's me or if it's the family doctor, that doesn't really matter. But this patient will should have some follow up for this. Yeah, I, I guess maybe the caveat would be unless they pee the stone out, and they actually have it in the urine strainer and they've got it. 
Well, believe it or not, I I, I will still send them for imaging because sometimes uh, you know it could be two stones. So that's a great that's a great learning point then. So everybody should probably, even if they're a teeny stone, get a repeat imaging in a month. That's my practice, and that's how we're 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 moving towards nowadays as urologists. I want to ask a question because this comes up probably every two years. Somebody brings out a study saying people should be on Flomax. And then two years from time, they say, no, they should be on a calcium channel blocker. And then a study comes out saying, it doesn't matter which one to use. What do you guys think? Yeah, so recently uh, we had the pleasure of speaking with the Royal Clement Hospital Eagle Ridge uh, emergency physicians. And this was a, a huge question. Everybody wanted some clarity on the issue. And the answer is, is there's been, there have been so many studies and meta-analyses done on this topic. Calcium channel blockers just don't have enough data behind them, period. So we don't recommend calcium channel blockers anymore. Um, but in terms of um, alpha blockers, there's enough evidence that um, the, it, they probably do help um, smaller stones uh, pass. Not huge stones, but smaller stones pass. And so, um, I, and the drawbacks and side effects of alpha blockers are actually quite low, especially if you use something very selective like Tamsulosin or Flomax. So typically urologists will recommend if they're, you know, four or five millimeters, even six millimeters, it's probably worthwhile to put them on some Flomax. There certainly is very little drawback. And when you look at all the good data combined, there is probably some benefit to having it uh, in terms of stone passage rate but also analgesia. I once looked into this because I was tired of wading through those papers. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the alpha muscle receptors all through the ureter are different. I think there are more distally than there are approximately. So my bare bones approach has been, if you've got a small stone and it's in the lower half of the ureter, you get flow max. If it's bigger or if it's up higher, it does not matter. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of approaching it. When you look at uh, alpha receptors, most of them are around the bladder, neck, and prostate. And as you get higher up in the upper urinary tract, there there are very few of them. But having said that, most stones, if they're four or five millimeters, even if they're in the proximal ureter, eventually will end up in the distal ureter. So uh, yeah, I think the size criteria is important. Uh, if they have a two centimeter stone stuck in the UPJ, doesn't matter how much alpha blocker you give them, that stone's going to be stuck there. Okay, so bottom line is calcium channel blockers, no. Alpha blockers, yes. And they're more likely to work with smaller stones that are distal. The only stones you wouldn't consider them in are the large proximal stones that are going to need some sort of lithotripsy. Correct. I'm presuming on most of these um, renal colics at some point in time, you're going to need to get some blood work. Just a CBC, electrolytes, buane, creatinine, probably a calcium, uric acid, and probably a urine as well? Absolutely. I, I think that's a good uh, place to start in the emergency room uh, as part of your initial investigation. Um, when we send people, people for shockwave lithotripsy or pre-surgically, we have to get all those anyway. So we and we sometimes see pyuria in these renal colic patients, a little bit of blood and a little bit of white blood cells, but they don't have a high fever. They don't have a tachycardia. And you're trying to decide, is this an infected stone or not? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so pyuria is fairly common in uh, patients with stones. In fact, pyuria is fairly common in patients without stones. Um, I see it all the time, and it really doesn't mean much. 
at the end of the day, you want to treat treat the patient. Um, so, so I mean, there. I mean, I wish there was a holy grail where you could say, oh, if the white blood cells were higher than this, this must have an infection. But the answer is, it's not true. I mean, if you have really high amount of white blood cells in the urine, yeah, that's probably an infection. Um, if their blood, you know, if their serum white blood cells are are above 15, there's probably some type of thing brewing. Having said that, I've seen young guys, 23 years old, they come in with renal colic, they're so stressed, their white blood cell count is 23, right? And and they're not infected, they're just, they're just really... Yeah. So at the end of the day, you really have to treat the infection. Now, when it comes to... This is a big topic as well, but when it comes to uh, obstructive pyonephrosis, that's the true emergency in uh, in renal colic, right? So the the emergency is not a urinary tract infection and a stone. The emergency is that the kidney is now an abscess with 20% of your cardiac output going through there each minute, washing bacteria into the bloodstream, okay? So that's the emergency. So I have plenty of old ladies with the with, you know, bladder infections and a chronic, you know, seven millimeter, eight millimeter stone lodge in their upper ureter, that's not a urologic emergency. That's a bladder infection plus a chronic stone. Um, but what, what you worry about is if you have an obstructive stone, pus in the kidney, infection in the kidney, that is going to turn into sepsis really, really quickly. Right? So that's, that's the differentiation in terms of what is truly a urologic emergency in this case. Okay, that's a great point to emphasize. Uh, clinically septic stones, it's a surgical emergency. We'll call you in the middle of the night. Well, I, I guess the other question that I always get asked is, uh, what are what are the emission criteria for renal colic? Like, and, and this is something that you guys will see, like, oh, should I keep this patient? Should I not keep this patient? Um, should I pay, put this patient on OPAT IV antibiotics? Like, what is... What is the role of all these? So for in terms of emission, in terms of calling a urologist uh, in middle of the night, renal failure or pending renal failure, so bilateral ureteral stone, single uh, single kidney with a ureteral stone, uh, sepsis, so this patient is high white cell count, high-grade fever, um, obstruction, blood pressure is low, tachycardic. That's a true urologic emergency. If this patient has low-grade fever, um, you know, some sweats when the pain comes on, um, you know, you dip the urines, a bit of white cell count in there, but they're not looking like they're septic, that is not a true urologic emergency. That patient, if they look a little, little bit unwell and you try to treat them with some pain medications, they still look kind of unwell, you can keep them for observation and, uh, you know, we will watch them. But usually we end up sending them home after 24 hours when the renal blood flow gets shunted and they feel 3,000 times better. The if they, if they settle down a bit and you're still worried maybe they have a bladder infection, I think that patient is suitable for OPAT treatment or even oral treatment. for. But, but obviously, you tell them, if you start spiking high-grade fevers or start feeling really unwell, you get back here right away. Um, and the other uh, mission um, uh, criteria include just uncontrollable pain. And to me, that's um, kind of a, a soft one. Uh, usually... With the right cocktail of things, ninety uh, percent of the patients without sepsis can their pain can get controlled. Um, gross hematuria, uh, yeah, if they're bleeding so much from their uh, kidney stone that uh, they're clotting off and they can't pee properly, then they should probably stay. 
But uh, every once in a while, you'll see a high-grade obstruction with something called a ruptured fornix, a fornicial rupture. And basically what that means is that the pressure in the kidney is so, so high that the urine extrudes through the renal capsule. Okay, And um, that is not, believe it or not, that's not a true, there's not, no emergency to that. You treat that patient exactly the same as you would treat a normal renal colic. And their stone passage rates are exactly the same. Even though at one point, they build up so much pressure in their kidneys that they decompress backwards, you give them some time. If their stone's small enough, they'll pass. Okay, just so I'm clear, when your kidney explodes, it's okay. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so it sounds like the people we need to admit are mononephric patients with a stone, bilateral ureteric stones, septic patients, maybe grossly hematuric patients, maybe intractable pain patients probably about it okay i guess not intractable nausea vomiting as well that's those people but you give them, you give those patients 24 hours they're they're by the time i see them the next day after my or they're they're feeling they're they look like a million bucks joe i think we should move on to urinary retention. urinary retention okay let's do it okay brian so such a common problem what do you recommend to us the emerge community for a patient with first time urinary retention it's probably due to BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy, and the nurse just cannot get a Foley catheter in. And we'll say it's like midnight now, and the patient's 70 years old, male, can't pee. What's your advice? If it were up to me, uh, no nurse under five years of experience would ever touch any catheter other than a coude tip catheter. It's the safest catheter in the entire hospital. Uh, a straight catheter uh, can cause a false passage. What happens is most of the time, it's the patient is so tense because somebody's trying to stuff something up their urethra that they flex their, they're just so tense, their their entire pelvic floor shuts. And then a straight catheter pokes, pokes, pokes and makes a false passage right under that prostate. Okay. Now, if you have a coup de tip catheter, I don't, I mean, the, the coup de tip catheter, it's built to deflect, right? You cannot poke through tissue with that tip. Okay, it has a big bulbous end on it, and it also has a really weak kind of elbow at the tip. So when you hit obstruction, it, it will either deflect up into the bladder, or it'll deflect back out the urethra. Okay, it will never dig into. Even if you put the coude tip upside down by accident, you hit that prostate, you hit that pelvic floor, it'll just kind of deflect back out the urethra and come back out the urethra. That's a great point. So why don't we just always use the coude tip catheters then? I think uh, there's some unfamiliarity. Uh, one of the things that just makes my blood boil every time I hear about it is uh, we have a policy that nurses can't put in coup de catheters, right? And uh, there is no policy that nurses cannot put in coup de tip catheters, but they don't understand what this catheter, just because it has a little kink at the end, they think it's more complicated. They think it's more traumatic. It's not true. It's probably the best catheter. The other reason is probably just cost. And I would even say, even in females, the coup de tip catheters work fantastic. I would use a coup de tip catheter. If I, I, I would get rid of every single straight catheter in the whole entire hospital for the, for the coup de tip catheter. That is a great message. Sounds like a reasonable plan to me. I guess there probably is a, a price differential, but it probably can't be that great between coup de tip catheters and the other catheters. I mean, you don't want to know how much it costs the government to bring me in in the middle of the night to put a catheter in. <laughs> what size of catheter are you using? 
So um, this is an interesting question as well. If you think that the obstruction is because of a prostate issue, you should use an 18 or a 20 French coude, so a big one. And the reason you do that is because the prostate lobes are obstructing in the urethra, and what you want is a catheter with some wall tension to push through the obstructing lobes. Yeah, and the bigger catheters are a bit stiffer, aren't they? They are, so, so that helps. Now, one of the tricks to putting in the catheter is making sure the patient is completely relaxed. You gotta make sure their toes aren't pointing up at their nose, that their, their hips aren't locked. You wanna make sure that their hips are relaxed. And what I often do is I take their ASIS and I wiggle it back and forth just to make sure that their feet are flopping around. And I say, you gotta fully relax this muscle or else I cannot get this catheter in. That's the first thing I would do. Second thing I would do is put in two lidocaine jellies, okay? So those lidocaine jellies, the studies have shown that the lidocaine probably doesn't do a thing. It just uh, It's just in contact for way really too long. Urothelium is a waterproof lining. It probably just doesn't really do much, but what it does is it lubricates the entire passageway. And what it also does is it primes their sphincter to have that feeling of something going across it, okay? So they can better relax their sphincter when you're putting the catheter. Next thing I would do is, if you think it's BPH, go big. 16, 18 French coup d'etat catheter, steady, steady as she goes. And when you hit the sphincter, you can always feel a little bit of resistance and just hold it there. And you can feel the tip of that coup d'etat catheter flip up into the bladder. And once that's in, you shove it all the way in. There's only two criteria in which I, I teach everybody. There's only two you can only blow up the catheter balloon when one, it's all the way in, right to the hilt. Doesn't matter if it's male or female, that catheter has been right to the hilt. And two, you get urine flashback. That is, under these circumstances, you can blow up a catheter balloon. If you're missing one of those two things, do not blow up the catheter balloon. Yeah, I guess what you're worried about there is you could be in a false passage or it might might have coiled around or done something. If, if it's not in the bladder and you blow up the balloon, you're gonna cause some pretty bad harm, I'm guessing. Yeah, and it's kind of complicated. There's been a number of times where I've seen a catheter go in and kind of deflect partially back in the urethra. So the catheter is actually bent upon itself. Somebody forces 10 cc's of fluid into that balloon. The balloon blows up in the urethra, and now you can't suck that fluid out because the catheter is kinked upon itself. And what, I, <laughs> what I've done there is you can actually feel the catheter balloon right underneath the scrotum and I stick a little needle in, pop it, and then it comes out. But that's, that's the kind of thing that can happen. That's a mild issue. But yes, you can rupture a, 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 a urethra wide open uh, if you put in 30 cc's like in, a, for example, a CBI catheter. Right. If you shove in 30 cc's into that balloon, that's going to rupture that, catheter, that urethra wide open. And then after that, getting a catheter is almost impossible. So I think I'm hearing a large coude catheter, like size 18, and two little vials of the lidocaine, the viscous lidocaine, uh, up the urethra. And go kind of slow, make sure they're nice and relaxed. Hopefully that'll work. Yes. Now, not on the flip side, if you think this patient has a stricture, like they've had instrumentation trauma, they've had a past history of stricture. I mean, certainly at RCH, I mean, most of the patients you've seen in, their, in the emergency have seen one of us already before, and you can read in the history that cystoscopy showed a stricture. Then you have to go small. And, and uh, I would probably start off with a 12 or 14 in those patients, two lidocaine jelly, same, the other principles are exactly the same. I like what you said too about those two conditions before you inflate the balloon. You have to hub it and you have to get urine flashback. Yeah. Otherwise, you may not inflate. So we've tried everything, and the coup doesn't go in. 
and the patient's got an extremely full bladder and is kind of moaning and writhing on the bed there. What now? So are you in Royal Clement Hospital or are you in Bella Coola? We're in Bella Coola. Bella Coola. Okay, so Bella Coola, what I would do is, first of all, um, I would consider at this point a suprapubic catheter, okay? And even at Royal Clement Hospital or Lionsgate Hospital, if the urologist is busy in the operating room, this guy's just in so much pain, you can consider suprapubic aspiration, Right. So the, there's a couple things to that you have to make sure uh, is in place before you do something like this. First of all, you have to look at their abdomen. If they have an abdominal incision in the midline down into the pelvis, do not stick a needle blindly into that. Now, you guys are so good with the, uh, with the ultrasounds that you may use an ultrasound-guided um, approach, and that's really, really safe. But, I, I mean, I would not blindly stick anything into that guy's suprapubic area. Now, second thing is, is that the bladder scan has to show above 500 cc's of urine in that bladder to safely do it. In fact, I would say I would feel more comfortable if there was between 7 to 1,000 cc's of urine before I blindly stick a suprapubic catheter into this patient. Suprapubic catheters are easy to do, and they're actually one of the most gratifying things you can do for a patient. You know, 15 attempts at urethral catheterization, blood coming out of the meatus. This guy's bladder still got two liters in it. And he's looking at you and he's begging for help. Once you get that catheter into him, the relief they feel is phenomenal. But like I said, there's a safe way to do it. Uh, you make sure there's no lower abdominal incision. You make sure the bladder's pretty darn full. And the first thing I would do is I would cite my suprapubic catheter. So I would prep the suprapubic area and go about one or two finger breaths above the pubic symphysis. At that point, I make a little mark with a pen or, or something, some sterile pen or something. And the first thing I would do is take the smallest spinal needle you can find, either the blue one or the black one, and try and freeze the skin and aspirate and see how deep you have to go with that spinal needle before you hit bladder. It's always gonna be easier getting into a bladder with a spinal needle than it is going to be with a trocar because it's just so much sharper and so much finer. So once you know where that bladder is, you can mark, oh, okay, so it's an inch under the skin, it's a centimeter under the skin. You know how far you're gonna to have to stick that trocar in before you're gonna get flashback of the urine. I usually use the Bard set. I know you guys can use the Cook set, which is kind of a more Seldinger technique. The Bard set has a sheath and a trocar. And once I find the bladder, I'll make a small incision about a centimeter large at that area. And with the trocar, you have to put it in at a similar angle than your spinal needle went in. And once you go in, you'll feel a little bit of resistance before the bladder. You might have to give it a sharp push to get, break through the bladder wall. And then you'll see the urine come rushing around the trocar up the cannula. And at that point, with the barred one, you, you take the trocar out, you have the cannula, you feed the catheter through it, and it's a peel-away sheath. Yeah, so we have both of those, um, those systems. Um, probably for most eMERGE physicians, I'm going to say um, either just aspiration is the way to go um, to buy time till the morning or the Seldinger wire technique. But I must admit, I've done that technique you're talking about with the trocar, and it's very easy to do if it's ultrasounded guided. But I, I'm guessing most phys, most emergency physicians haven't done that. So I'm going to say either just aspiration to buy time or go with the Seldinger, the Cook catheter technique. And if you're just going to do aspiration, I think the um, first thing you do is you use a small spinal needle, find the bladder, 
And then once you find that, you can actually use an 18 gauge needle at that point and put it right into the bladder and start sucking back with your 60cc lure lock syringe and suck out the urine. Don't be like that guy on the airplane in China where he'll use it in his mouth. It's not necessary in the emergency room. Why not just use, we call them one-step catheters. It's just a little five French. It's like a big fat IV. Why can't I just pass that in? You can, but it's really, <laughs> I guess uh, the, the question is, is when it's that small, it's going to have a real tough time draining out of that. You're going to have to be able to stick something on and then suck the urine out. Sure. Okay. okay so we've, we've got the catheter in and we're going to be sending this patient home. Um, so the patient was in urinary retention and now we've got this catheter in there, the 18 CUDE, and we get a hold of you the next day and you see the patient. Would you like us to put the patient on any medications before you see the patient? The studies have shown that alpha blocker therapy for about three to five days of its Flomax will increase their chance of voiding from trial avoid by 50%. So if you believe it's BPH causing urinary retention, alpha blocker therapy is almost imperative. So we should probably stick all the urinary retentions on the alpha blocker therapy if they're not already on it. And you would probably see them in your office sometime within, what, a week or so? I don't see them in the office. I bring them to my ambulatory care when I'm doing cystoscopies. And I'll take out their catheter, do a quick cystoscopy, rectal exam, take a history. And then my nurses will watch them over the next few hours to make sure they can void before they go home. So that's how I meet them. And if they're on alpha blocker therapy already, that's great. If they're not on alpha blocker therapy, they often fail their trial of void. And I have to put the catheter back in, start them on alpha blocker therapy, and I'll bring them back again in about a week to try again. I was going to ask about... So the patient has uh, urinary retention and gross hematuria, and you're thinking the urinary retention is probably because of clots. What kind of advice would you give for us there? This is the case where a, a proper history is imperative. Okay, so oftentimes I get referred for clot retention, and the 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 bleeding actually never started coming out until failed catheterizations. So that's not clot retention. That's just a guy who was in retention, now he has bleeding out the urethra because there's a false passage in the urethra. So those patients actually, if I hear that, I'll just put a catheter in his bladder and usually the urine comes back clear. It looks all bloody all over their pelvis and all over the bed, but it's actually all just coming from the urethra. Now, if the patient's been bleeding for five days and, and uh, you know, it's become his peeing has been on and off and he's peeing, been peeing out clots and now he can't pee at all, yeah, that's clot retention. And it's a very difficult problem to deal with. Um, first of all, the type of catheter I would put in, obviously, is a three-way catheter. I'd go large bore, so something like a 22 or a 24. 16 French three catheters should not exist. They do nothing. Uh, they will irrigate the bladder out, but you cannot pull any clots out of that. It's, it's like half the size of a proper like a urethra. So if you can pull a, a clot out of a 16 French fully, you should be able to pee that out easily. So 16 French three-ways, 18 French three-ways, I would say even 20 French three-ways should not even exist. The second thing is, is that we have these fantastic catheters at the Royal Clement Hospital called the Kubelair catheters. And these are three-way catheters with a huge hole, and, um, and they're made out of thick silicone. So what they do is when you suck back on them to pull out a clock, they don't just collapse. So these Kubelair catheters are available on the ward on 3 South and available in the operating room. And I would recommend that these catheters be in every rural hospital because they have saved many patients' clot evacuation surgeries. Can you say the name of that catheter again? It's made by a company called Rush, R-U-S-C-H, and they're called Couvelaire, C-O-U-V-E-L-A-I-R-E, Couvelaire. Oh, it's a French name, Couvelaire. Yeah, Couvelaire. <laughs> 
Cuvillier catheters, and these are these have saved a lot of my patient surgeries because you can pull out massive clots through those catheters. Awesome. Yeah. Let's see if we can pull it all together. So we talked about renal colic. We talked about urinary retention. So what are the two big takeaway topics from each of those? So two from each. First with renal colic. So I think uh, for renal colic, I think in the acute episode, um, just making sure that there's none of those red flags um, that they're, you know, I, I think you have to do a proper thorough workup, including laboratory investigations, imaging, as long and as long as they're not septic, their kidney function is reasonable. Their kidney function doesn't have to be normal, but as long as they're not like creatinine of 400 with a GFR of 10 or something like that, then then I, I would let them let them go. I, I think that NSAIDs work better than just pure narcotics for this type of pain for, for multiple different reasons. And also Flomax, for the smaller stones, they probably do work. So I would put them on there. All right. So identify high-risk patients, use NSAIDs, and use alpha blockers. Urinary retention takeaways. I think urinary retention takeaways, catheterization is all, is more psychological than it is physical, <laughs> is being able to get the patient to properly relax because that first attempt is the most important attempt and you want to maximize everything. Uh, if you are concerned about the prostate at all, just start with the start with a cudative catheter. It's the safest catheter in there. Get the patient to relax, put a bang a couple of lidocaine jellies in, and nice steady pressure. Well, I guess the pitfall is also what we talked about. You must have it fully in with urine flashback before you inflate the balloon. Brian, that was very awesome. Thank you very very much. Thanks to the BC Emergency Medicine Network for being the catalyst and support for the podcast. You can find out more about the podcast at www.bcemn.ca. And that was excellent.